Grab a seat, and as you do, grab your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. If uh, We're making our way through the very first book of the Bible here. It's a series we've been in from Labor Day, being it till about uh, Easter. And um, uh, we've said all along that this study of Genesis, the study of the first book of the Bible, it really uh, gets to answering some of life's deepest questions. Where do we come from? Uh, whose world is this anyway? And, and as a created people by a creator God, how are we to live in light of that within this world in which uh, which is the Lord's, and we're the Lord's, and where does our faith come from? Where does it all stem from? These are the questions uh, that uh, the very first book of the Bible gets at, the origins of the world, the origins of our faith, and we uh, are breaking the, our study of Genesis into four parts, and let me just kind of recap where we've been because we've taken a few weeks off here through the holidays, but in part one, we looked at creation. We said uh, God created, and this is his world, and we are created ones, and we're to live in life of that. And then we looked at the fall, where does sin entered the world and uh, Adam and Eve's disobedience and the effects of that that have rippled down in the form of original sin. And uh, we saw Noah, that God came and he judged the increasing wickedness on the earth with a global flood. And then there's this beautiful covenant he makes with Noah with this beautiful rainbow in which he says, never again will I destroy all ma mankind with this global flood. And then we saw shortly on the heels of, of, of this recreation after the flood, this encounter at Babel, in which uh, the Lord has been saying, listen, you are my image bearers, and you're to multiply my image across the face of the earth. And, and yet, instead of scattering and multiplying God's image and making his name great, they build a city, and they stay right there, and they build a tower to make a name for themselves. And this is where we transitioned into part two, because in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to someone, and he's, he's, a, he's one of the main... Uh, characters here throughout the story of Genesis and even beyond. His name's Abram, and uh, the Lord gives Abram a call. He says, I, I want you to go south. I want you to leave what you know and where you know and who you know, and I want you to go to a place that you don't know, and Abram does something crazy to he obeys. He leaves what is known, and he walks out into the unknown, and you have this beautiful covenant that's made with him in which God uh, uh, has Abraham separate uh, these, these animals, and the Lord alone passes through between these animals in Genesis 15, and in doing so, he's saying, I will be the faithful God to you. You will be my people. I will be your faithful God, even though you will not remain faithful always to me. God introduces a sign of this covenant. It's called circumcision, and we were introduced to that. And then um, where we ended before the holiday break, the Lord comes, and these angels promise him a son. There will be a covenant son, and we'll see that in the coming days. But this is where we are in the midst of part two, in like the middle of Genesis chapter 18. And after the angels promise that you will have this covenant son, uh, the, the story takes uh, a, an interesting shift here. And, and, and I want us to see this shift here, but before I do, I want to I lead into this by asking a question. When's the last time you turned the news on or you read a headline and it, and it literally made you sick to your stomach? There's some chuckles like there was in first service. We've had a week of headlines, right? And there's, there's some headlines that we read, there's some nights we flip on the news, and literally, the depth of the depravity, it twists our stomach. 
We feel this visceral reaction to the evil in which we're reading or the evil in which we've heard, and, 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 and it's sick, and it's deplorable, and, it, and, 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 and right there in front of us on the news or in the headline, it's like we're seeing the depravity of the human condition apart from a Savior. Today, as we turn our eyes to the Bible, we're going to be confronted with the depths of the depravity of the human condition apart from a Savior. It's sick, it's twisted. We're gonna watch the sin of a people um, rise up before the Lord in a way that's gonna make his wrath rain down, and we're gonna see it right here. Now, I, I wanna use Genesis chapter 18 by way of introduction to get us to Genesis chapter 19. So Genesis 19 serves as the body of the message today, but we gotta understand some things of how the story shifts here in Genesis 18 to set it up. And so if you would, pick it up with me in uh, Genesis 18 verse 16. Uh, then the men set out from there. These are those angels who have just said, hey, you will have a covenant son. And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And now, I, I want us to stop there. And here in this interaction is the Lord's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make known to Abraham what I'm about to do here. But, but we see something. We're reminded of the promise God has made to Abraham. You will be a nation. You will grow to be this great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Um, uh, we're reminded of that promise, but we're also, uh, we're also reminded of the purpose, the purpose of human beings, that they are to be God's image bearers, and that God is raising up Abraham here, that, uh, that, that, that there might be a people on the face of the earth who are keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and doing justice, and, and in this we're reminded, but now the Lord says, but there's a threat to this. There's a great threat to this, and, and the eyes uh, turn down to the valley here, and look at what we see here in verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And so the, 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 the camera pans here down into the valley, and the Lord says, there's a great outcry that has risen up. It's grave. It's horrible. It's, it's despicable. It's deplorable. And he said, the Lord says, I'm going to come down and see it. Now, we know that literally the Lord can see from anywhere. It's the same language we see here in the Babel account of the Lord coming down to look on this wickedness. And we just got to be reminded of something, God's people. The Lord will always come down and deal with wickedness. In his righteousness, in his justice, he will deal with it. We'll talk through this, through this story and we'll see how he does that. We'll talk about how he's done that on, on our behalf in our own story. But the Lord comes down here and he says, I have to deal with this wickedness. Now watch this interaction now between the Lord and Abraham. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous, uh, uh, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You have this, it, it, it's a profound, it is, it, is, it is a powerful interaction between Abraham and the Lord. Abraham uh, interceding on behalf of, of any righteous down in Sodom. But we gotta understand something about this interaction. We, we read this and we go, well, was this a mere mortal? Was this a man like trying to change God's mind? Was the Lord like, fine, Abraham, like if I find 10 people there, I will spare it. No, 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 no. I think what we have here is this beautiful interaction from a near, near God displaying his righteousness and his justice and his mercy. The Lord, the Lord is drawing out in Abraham, let me show you my mercy. Let me show you my justice and my righteousness, but let me show you my mercy. Abraham's not in the driver's seat of this conversation. God is. Uh, uh, Derek Kidner, a uh, 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 biblical scholar, done some work on Genesis. He says this, the initiative in this great intercession was with God in the sense that he broached the subject himself waited for Abraham's plea, and chose the point at which the matter should end. God is revealing to Abraham and in turn to us his nearness, his justice, his mercy, and his righteousness here through this wonderful interaction between Abraham interceding on behalf of any righteous down in Sodom. And so as we get to, ver uh, as we get to chapter 19 then, we're going to see God's action in Sodom. And, and I, want us to, I want to work us through this chapter kind of with four words as our mile marker. Here are the four words. Uh, wickedness, wrath, mercy, and justice. Wickedness, wrath, mercy, and justice. We're going to see it, these four things in the story of Sodom. And as we end today, I want us to not only go like, oh, well, those were things that applied to this, this story of how God destroyed a city thousands and thousands of years ago. No, how do those four words come to bear in our own story as well? And here's kind of the big idea today that frames everything we're talking about. Our wickedness deserves God's judgment. God's mercy provides an escape. Our wickedness deserves God's judgment. God's mercy provides an escape. Let's see this together here in Genesis chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. 
Then you may rise up early and go on your way. This is the, the, the model of Middle Eastern hospitality in which we've come to know as we study the Bible. Lot saying, no, no, come, come on. Strangers into our city, come stay with me for the night here. They reply here in the middle of verse 2. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow who came to sojourn has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Uh, this is the moment. This is the headline that makes you sick to your stomach. This is the part in the story where we see the depths of the depravity of the human condition. The angels come into Lot's house, the, the men, it says, uh, like every man to the last one, surround the house here, and it says, bring out these men who have come to you that we may know them. And if, and if you have Bible background, you know uh, that's a, a way that the Bible communicates uh, sexual relations. Bring out these men that we may have sexual relations with them. And, and, and at first it looks like, oh, Lot, he's, 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 he's pleading with them to not act so wicked. He says, do not act so wicked, men. And then uh, with his proposal, we see his own wickedness in this. We see how this culture has infiltrated into Lot's life. He says, here are my two daughters. Do not do anything to these men, but do whatever might please you to my daughters. This is gross. This is deplorable. This is wickedness at its highest. This is what has been rising up before the Lord as this, uh, this wicked offering that's going to lead to his wrath raining down here. This reveals to us the depths of the depravity of the human condition apart from a Savior. And it's the first thing I want us to note in this story. It's this. We are desperately wicked people. We are desperately wicked people. Apart from a redeemer, someone to buy us out of the power of sin and give us the Holy Spirit to guide us into the fruit of the Spirit coming out of our life, we are capable, the depths of the depravity of the human condition is capable for unspeakable wickedness. We are totally depraved. What, what does it mean to be totally depraved? What is total depravity? Total depravity is the complete corruption of the human condition as a result of the fall. When sin entered the world, back in Genesis 3 that we saw, that we, that we looked at, and we've seen the, the ripple effects of that, we are a completely corrupt people. And it's the wickedness of the human condition that deserves something. The wickedness of man rightly deserve something from God. What is that something? Look at what it says in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, 
Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this, bring them out of the place. For we are about to what? What's it say? We are about to what? We're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And, and who sent them? Well, who's it say there? Who sent them? And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were, into, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this place. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He goes to the house of his sons-in-law. He's like, listen, guys, we pack it up. We got to get out of here. The Lord's going to destroy this. And they're like, our father-in-law's gone nuts. Imagine your father-in-law coming into your house and saying, hey, pack it up. We got to go. This is all going to get destroyed. And yet, this is exactly what we see here. All of this wickedness has come up before the Lord in a way that the Lord has said this must be destroyed. This must be uh, uh, utterly obliterated, completely wiped off the map. Not a hint of it left here. The wrath of God is going to rain down here. It's the second thing I want us to know. Our wickedness deserves God's wrath. Our wickedness deserves God's wrath. Now, what is the wrath of God? Uh, we're about to see it in full force here in Genesis 19. We see it uh, all throughout the Bible. Uh, God's wrath will rain down again in the future when God comes to judge those who have not believed in Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we understand. While it might not be one of those things we, 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 we love to study like other aspects of doctrine, it's important that we have an understanding of the wrath of God. Uh, a couple of resources I would commend you on this that I think... Um, are helpful readings on this. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, the chapter on the wrath of God, fantastic resource. Uh, David Schrock wrote an article on the wrath of God. If you just Google David Schrock, wrath, gospel coalition, like you'll find that article. But David Schrock helps kind of define for us what is the wrath of God, and here's how he defines it. The, whole, uh, the wrath of God is the holy action of retributive justice toward persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. Got it, right? Simple, yeah? We gotta understand what does this mean here. It's like, that, David, that's a, that's a pretty lengthy definition that almost needs to be defined to, in order to understand wrath. Right, it, it is, but, but can you really boil the wrath of God, God down into some 10-cent definition? I don't, I don't think you can. And so let's understand what David Schrock is trying to pull out here. The wrath of God is first and foremost, it's a holy action. God is holy and righteous to rain his wrath down on wickedness. It is in perfect harmony with his character of who he is as a just and loving and righteous God. And why is it a holy action? It's a holy action because it includes retributive justice. What is retributive justice? Well, retribution, right? What's retribution? It's, it's a punishment for a wrong. What's justice? It's, it, it's acting in, in, in accordance to what is morally good. So this is a holy action of God because um, uh, people deserve retribution. We, we have acted in a way that deserves punishment. 
we have not acted in a way that is morally good as defined by God. So it's a holy action of retributive justice, and this retributive justice, this retribution, this punishment deserved for our lack of moral goodness is directed somewhere. Where is it directed? It's directed toward persons. The wrath of God is directed towards the wickedness of people. What people? People whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What I deserve is eternal condemnation. And now, 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 lift up your head. The next word is mercy. We're going to get there. But we can't get there before we understand. We can't get to the right understanding of the mercy of God without a right understanding of the wrath of God. The mercy of God is the joy-giving, freedom-bringing mercy because the wrath of God is the depths of, of, of what it is. We can't skip over wrath to get to mercy. We have to understand wrath. And the wrath of God is God's holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. And all of us sit in this room and we're like, uh-oh, I think I'm one of those who deserve the eternal condemnation. Lord, is there a way of escape? Lord, please, is there any way of escape? Is there anything we'll see in the story here that might indicate that God delights in giving a merciful way of escape out of this retributive justice? Look at what it says, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But, but what does Lot do? Verse 16, what's it say? But Lot what? But he lingered. They're like, get out of here, man. This place is going to be obliterated, and the lot, lot lingers there. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being what? Say it again. The Lord being merciful to him. Get out of here, Lot. This is going to blow up. You got to go. And Lot's lingering there like, oh, but I kind of like Sodom. It's been good to me. They grab him and his wife and his daughter, and they whisk them out of the city by the mercy of God. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It's, it is, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. An escape from the wrath of God by the mercy of God. Third thing we gotta see, God's mercy makes a way for us to escape God's wrath. God's mercy makes a way for us to escape God's wrath. We're gonna apply this to our story in the closing moments here, but I want us to understand something. Why was Lot shown mercy? 
Did Lot earn this mercy? Was Lot the one righteous person in Sodom? My argument to you would be that I think the text indicates by the proposal that he makes to the men about his daughters, I think it lets us into where Lot's heart is at. Lot is not spared. Lot has not shown the mercy of God. Mercy means to withhold what is rightfully due. Lot didn't earn being withheld uh, from the wrath of God. Why was Lot spared? I, uh, we're, we're given a hint to this at the end of the story in a little summary statement. Look at what verse 29 says. Genesis 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Lot. Is that what it says? God remembered who? God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot is shown mercy because God is remembering the righteous intercession of a righteous interceder on his behalf. Y'all, listen to me. We are shown mercy not because we have earned the mercy of God, because God is recognizing the righteous acts of the righteous intercessor, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Come on, y'all. My best Joe Catronio right there. Lavished on the mercy of God because of the acts of a righteous interceder on our behalf, the King Jesus Christ. Amen. We see it here. God making a way of escape from his wrath. Why? Because our God is a merciful God. So long-suffering with us. Delighting in showing mercy. And Lot is the recipient of this mercy here. Now, um, Lot escapes. But what about everyone else there? Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven, out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him, what'd she do? She looked back. What did God say not to do? Get out of here and don't look back. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived, the judgment of God. The fourth thing we see in this story is this, God's judgment falls on any who do not receive God's mercy. It, it, it just, it's just fact. That the judgment of God falls on any who do not receive God's mercy. We see God's judgment here in the story of Sodom. And I want us to understand, though, as we look at these four things, wickedness, wrath, mercy, judgment, that we would fall short today if all we did was look back on the story of Sodom and say, oh, look at how those four things applied in their story. 
And we didn't look forward to our own story here today and ask, how do these four things apply in our story? And so let's look at these four things. Wickedness, wrath, mercy, and judgment in our story. Wickedness. We are by nature a wicked people. I said at the outset, the headlines of the news remind us of this, but come on, y'all, let's be honest. Our own actions, my own thoughts, the words that come out of my mouth, whoa, where in the world did that come from? Remind me of it often as well. Jeremiah 17 tells us this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The world says, just follow your heart. God says, that'll be a train wreck. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tell us this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Of wrath, like the rest of mankind, which leads us to wrath. Where does the wrath of God apply in our story? Well, because of our wickedness, because we are wicked, we deserve God's wrath. Back to what it said in Ephesians 2, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We must understand this. This is why the study of Genesis, the origins of it all, give us an understanding uh, for our own life that sin did enter this perfect world that God made. The first human being sinned, and in subsequent generations, all human beings have sinned as well. Because of this sin, because of this wickedness, we, what we deserve is the wrath of God, but mercy, but mercy has come. For those who believe, Jesus took the wrath of God so that we can go free. God, didn't, God could not turn a blind eye to the wickedness. His wrath had to come down. How did his wrath come down? 1 John 2, 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins. You know how much I love this verse. A hundred percent of the wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ, not one ounce left for me if I am in Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God gives us an offer of grace and of mercy to give us a gift we don't deserve, to withhold from us what we do deserve. We get what we don't deserve because Jesus got what he didn't deserve. He's the propitiation for our sins. And when we get this, I've told you the story a number of times. When, when I'm reading this on the shore of Lake Michigan out five, six years ago, and 1 John 2, 2 was unlocked by the Spirit of God in a powerful way, and I went, he has not one ounce left to pour out on me. I literally, and I'm thankful it was like 40 degrees in Michigan that day, I got up on my feet and I'm jumping on the beach. And all the people in the house are like, honey, call the police. <laughs> Crazy guy out there jumping on the beach, 40 degrees. The freedom that this ignited in my heart, though, to understand the mercy that God has offered us, the mercy that he's offered you in this place today. And then judgment. We gotta talk about it. For all who do not believe. So for all who believe in Jesus, they receive this mercy that frees them from the power and the penalty of the sin. But for all who persist in unbelief, for all who do not believe, God's wrath will be poured out in eternal judgment. It's what, the, it's what all of the scriptures teach. 
And it's what we must lovingly look at each other in the eye and go, man, that can be hard to say to each other. Uh, we can cringe under hearing it, but it's just the fact. God offers a gift of mercy through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Judgment will be poured out on any who do not believe. And so I look at this room today and I just say, have you believed in Jesus Christ to receive the mercy of God? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? for the salvation from your sins to experience eternal life in his presence forever. The Bible calls us to believe. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. L listen, today in this church service, you can call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved from the penalty and power of the sin in your life. It's the offer he makes to us. And we want to complicate it in our little human brains and we want to say, well, there's got to be some way I work for it and, I, and, I, and there's certainly got to be ten, a 10-step process. No, repent and believe today. Call on him today. Do not persist in your unbelief. Believe today and call on the name of Jesus from your seat right there now. And here's what's awesome. Once we've believed, there's this, there's this biblical model of how we show the world that we are in fact believers. And it's this, this biblical model that is just an awesome, awesome thing for us to celebrate. And the Lord calls it baptism. That once someone has come to faith in Jesus Christ, the way they express their faith is by uh, getting into the water, by being uh, brought under the water and back up to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have believed on Jesus to save me from my sins, and I want all of the world to know that today. And uh, we get to close the service today by celebrating the mercy of God lavished on the lives of a few people who are ready to be baptized in our presence here this morning. Hallelujah. That's right, hallelujah. Hallelujah.